You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players and all about strategy, leveling up and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode 110 of Arsenal Pass. This week, we're going to be revisiting one of our favorite draft formats and a format that is coming back to competitive very soon. That's Monarch. I did say our favorite draft format, Hayden, but I didn't really ask you if you like this format. What do you think? I love how it's episode 110. It's a take 110 of Brendan trying to do the intro. It's like Uh, take two. Come on. (laughs) Uh, It's not definitely not one of my favorite formats. I, I don't mind it uh and i'm excited i'm actually looking forward to revisiting it there's been some like you know discussion around this as a way to bring in a third draft set for the Mm -hmm. year so this will be the one we take for national season we have of course have had outsider season to start the year and then we're going to have a a a third set for worlds and that that end of year season uh but you know it's a it's an interesting who would have called this that monarch was going to be the format you'd be drafting for nationals i don't think anyone had money on it so it's um I'm looking forward to at least revisiting it, but from my memories aren't necessarily fond. Mm-mm. Yeah, I think you got to play it at a bit of a higher level than me because during the time when Monarch was the competitive draft format of Flesh and Blood, there was only tournaments in APAC, I believe. Um, anyway, Hayden, talk to me about your week in Flesh and Blood. Uh, well, I'm traveling again this week, as you can see from the beautiful vista behind me if you're looking on uh the youtube video right now so a little bit quieter on the flesh and blood front this week trying to get in some testing for singapore singapore's only a couple of weekends away so uh and road to nationals of course kicked off on the weekend for certain regions but uh for uh, most countries and most regions road to nationals starts this weekend so i have a couple of road to nationals class constructed so just trying to get some games and trying to work out what on earth i want to play brendan i don't think i'm going to play play briar so i was just just been doing some testing, working out what to play. Um, I mean, format's interesting. I mean, we saw, we can talk about it in the news, but even from the Rose Nationals over the weekend, there was like some interesting decks that came out of it. So, you know, format definitely not solved. Lots to to look at and um, there is things to, to test and play. Are you enjoying the format more? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think there's there's more interest than maybe I felt pre-Worlds, you know, now that Lexi is really established as if not the top deck, then one of the two top decks with Ultim. Uh, I think it it gives a little bit more diversity to to the format, which is which is nice. I mean, that both those decks are really powerful, so you have to be able to compete with them. But I think there's a lot of sort of well, not a lot, but there is a reasonable number of different kind of strategies that are, that seem to be viable out there. Yeah, I'm sort of interested to see how it shakes out. I know probably next week we'll be talking uh, in more depth about the mm-hmm. emerging class constructed meta off the back of these road to nationals. Uh, my week in Flesh and Blood has mostly been my week in Marvel Snap. Uh, been playing a bit of tournaments to prepare for an event I'm playing at the end of June, which is in the United Kingdom. Um, it's yeah, it's like some content creator tournament, but yeah, I'll be flying over there uh, to compete at like a LAN in person, which that's like the biggest downside of these digital card games for me is that I really enjoy the personal aspect, the in-person aspect of TCGs. And if you can sort of bridge that gap, I'm all in. So yeah, sort of prepping for that. It's not too crazy, not not as hard as fab for sure, but definitely do want to do want to do well. And it's exciting to be sort of at the ground level of, um, you know, these, these early grassroots tournaments, because it is hosted by community members. Anyway, Hayden, I do have a question for you, by the way. Oh, I have a question uh, for you. So yeah, brilliant. Go you go first, okay. Then. I'll go first. Yeah. Ladies first. Um, 
Should the reigning national champion in flesh and blood automatically get an invite to the following year's event in order to defend the title? Oh, your clickbait uh, Twitter question. How is that clickbait, dude? <laughs> no, I'm just laughing because you messaged me first before you posted it. I was like, Brennan, checking. Wait, just to confirm, national champions don't get an invite. And I was like, no, it's, it's ridiculous. I, I didn't get one when I was the national champion. So my answer would be, look, if I couldn't get one, uh, I don't think they should implement it now. I feel disadvantaged. <laughs> No, I, I think I think they should. It's one invite, and I think it's weird to play at a national championship where potentially the national, the current reigning national champion, isn't qualified to play for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if in theory they are the best player from last year in that region, uh, they won the national championship, and for a lot of regions, a mixed a mixed format. I think they should be there. I think people want to compete against that player. That player should be in the room uh, if if possible. So yeah, I, I think they should. I don't think yeah. it's particularly a complicated one either. The reason I had to double check with you is because I messaged a current national champion in the form of Mr. Tark Patel, and he said, I don't think so. So I was, <laughs> I have no idea. But yeah, it, it, it seems kind of ridiculous. It, it feels like an oversight. I know some people legitimately would answer no to this question, um, mm-hmm. with a lot of the arguments being that the national champion should be able to win a road to nationals. If they can't, they don't deserve to be there. And I think that that just doesn't take into enough variables considering time, um, actual drive to go play road to nationals. I think that it's totally reasonable for someone to be the national champion and not want to go travel the road to nationals or struggle to get in or, you know, the region to region differences between a road to Nats, you know, maybe an APAC or road to Nats in Montana versus a road to Nats in, in Texas. They're wildly different. Uh, and there's not a ton of, uh, it's not very streamlined to be honest. So I, I agree with you, Hayden. I definitely think it should, they should. And I do think that it's, it's very bizarre that it's not already a thing. Feels like an oversight. Uh, I do want to say though, that if, Anybody from Legend Story Studios is listening. This poll on Twitter has 800 votes in 20 hours, and 93% of the community in flesh and blood believes that this should be yes. So please change it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Hey, and everyone who said no came second at the national championship. <laughs> So. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. The, the no, the no, the no argument is just so weak to me. I, I don't see it. I, I, I think it, it also adds, it's a way better marketing angle and adds a lot of hype to these events. These people going to be able to defend that title. Cause what's, what's like the, if you get into the situation where the national champion just, you know, maybe he's only able to play one event cause he's traveling or he or she's traveling and then they don't make it into top and, you know, they don't win the event uh, and get the invite. And they're not able to go. It, it just feels bizarre, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe the national championship champion, they used their PTI to get to Worlds last year. Because that's the other argument. It's like, well, if you know, you're know you a national champion and you're good enough and you have these PTIs, use a PTI. But even they might not have a PTI, right? And I think this is going to happen maybe once. Some, we're going to hear about it and then maybe something changes. But that a national champion, for whatever reason, maybe work commitments, life commitments, can't play road to national season and then you know, doesn't have enough XP or hasn't been playing enough regularly, unfortunately, for whatever reason, would love to play nationals, has the opportunity to, but doesn't have the invite. I, I think it, it might happen to, if it's going to happen, it's one or two people. The, the, the reality is, I think if, you, if you're if you the national champion, you're probably a very good player and you're probably going to be able to go to your own nationals and, and win an invite. That that piece is true. Uh, but, to, you know, the, the one thing, the difference between road to nationals and pro quest season that's really starting to become a divide quite interestingly is that I think for... You know, these established kind of players who are consistently playing on the Pro Tour uh, and at the highest level, they they probably don't need to be playing ProQuest, right? Because of how mm. ELO invites work, right? 
and yep. because of the fact they have these bank PTIs. But that that's not how nationals work. There's no ELO invites for nationals. So you actually create this interesting divide where the best players in the world to get their invites are going to have to play road to nationals, whether you know they want to or or not. If that's their goal, is to be a you know, quote unquote, professional player. It's an interesting one, which I don't think is a bad thing necessarily. I think it's good to have ensure that players, the best players in the world, are playing at some sort of grassroots level, and maybe encouraging them for roads nationals, but not pro quest as a as a as a nice dynamic um, moving forward. It's it's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. For me, I just like I already said, I think that it's like overwhelmingly yes, they should just get an automatic invite. Um, anyway, Hayden, you had a question. Yes. Um, I had a question for you. Oh, <laughs> Marvel Snap, right? So mm-hmm. just, just want to touch on tournament preparation. Question for you about that. How does that work? Because obviously in Marvel Snap, you know, just like you would in, in Flesh and Blood, you have these effective ban and restricted updates in, in Marvel, but it comes in the form of patches and new yeah. card releases. So is there, a, is there a release? Is there a patch scheduled before this event? And if so, how do you kind of take that into account when it comes to preparing for an event? Yeah, so it's, it's actually kind of like a triple whammy because you get a new card every single week in Marvel Snap, and you also get a patch uh, round about like every month to a couple weeks. That happens on Mondays, but you also get, in addition to that, every single week on Wednesday, to do something called OTA changes, which stands for over-the-air changes, where they change the value on two to four cards by like one or two points, try to bring cards back into the meta. So there's there's a lot of changes every single week, and the meta moves very fast for for preparing for a tournament. It does change a lot, right? It changes your approach. You're less focused on trying to find one super powerful deck and trying to create a process that makes you the most well-rounded player going into that tournament. Um, this tournament is also open deck list, uh, and of course, battle mode, so it's not like ladder. And because of that, um, it changes potentially what kind of decks you would bring uh, and also changes how you would approach the metagaming. Since it's an invite-only event, I can you know, create a sort of matrix <laughs> of my opponents to understand what decks they play, what tendencies they have, etc., which is on, it's going to be an advantage. So yeah, I think that it's similar to Flesh and Blood in a lot of ways, but specifically all of the patches and changes to cards and additions of new cards makes it so that you probably want to approach a tournament that's coming in, coming up at the end of June uh, from the perspective of, I want to be the most well-rounded player by the time I get to that tournament and, you know, I'll adjust on the fly at that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's a very fast meter game. And just for those of us out there that don't play Marvel Snap, ladder versus battle mode, what does that mean? So ladder is, um, if you ever played Marvel Snap, basically you queue up, um, you start at one cube, right? Which every, both players are wagering one cube. You can snap. It goes up to like four cubes or eight cubes, basically like an ante, like in poker. Battle mode is both players uh, come into a set of games. They start at 10 life or they have 10 cubes throughout that entire series, right? And you play game to game until one person runs out and it sort of ramps up. So after round five, you go into high stakes and immediately starts at wagering at two cubes, um, et cetera. So what that allows you to do rather than ladder is that you're able to, if it is closed deckless, which this will not be, you're able to understand what cards in your opponent's deck and adjust your game plan sort of on the fly as you play throughout that series, um, which I find super enjoyable to be honest. Cool. Great. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's, some, go to, let's go to the news. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Road to national season kicked off this past weekend for Europe, uh, UK, Hong Kong, and Singapore, or parts of each of those regions. 
uh, and everyone is this week. So I, I haven't seen any official data from the Roach Nationals we're recording on you know, my early Wednesday morning, uh, Brendan's Tuesday. So we haven't necessarily seen official data from the first semi-weekend of events. If I had to guess, mm-hmm. you know, there was around probably in, what was it, four weeks, five weeks, so around an eighth of the total events that you're going to see. So uh, there's probably some significant data in there. Anecdotally, what came out of the Road to Nationals weekend was uh, a lot of people doing well with decks they wanted to play. You know, there was a there was a Kadachi Fire that won an event that was streamed in the UK. Ultim won some events. Same with uh, Lexi. So, yeah, I mean, this first weekend of full Road to Nationals, we will be breaking down some of that next week, provided we have all the info and, and data that we want to to kind of go over. But it's going to be it's going to be an interesting season, I think. Like I was saying before about sort of you know viability of, of what you you can and cannot play. Um, I think the big question, Brendan, is is Ultim going to living legend in this mm. Rhodes National season? That's going to be the big question. My big question is how bad is Jermai's conversion rate going to be? As bad as you think it's going to be, probably. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so good luck to all those playing Rhodes Nationals this weekend. Full Rhodes Nationals, uh, as I say, for the next was it three weeks of Rhodes National season. This is, a, a, I guess, an additional fourth week. Um, Antwerp is also on this weekend calling Antwerp. So I'm looking forward to that. I know there is uh, some coverage for that, Brennan. So definitely be tuning in to, to watch some of that happening. Singapore is happening on June 9th. And then we have Birmingham not long after that. Uh, new episode of Limited Time Only dropped this week. Had uh, Lucas Oswald, someone that you know, Brendan, another one of these young guns that are out mm. there sort of playing on this North American circuit, doing very well. Lucas had a great run at, at Pro Tour Baltimore. Unfortunately, a, a 1-3 record in the final portion of CC knocked him out of, of top eight contention, but was kind of around the top tables all weekend from what I understand um, and had a great chat about how to draft Ninja in Outsiders. Yeah, it's funny because when you talk about the young guns, I believe there's almost exactly two of them uh, and they are the, both the same age and both incredibly good at this game. Uh, they're sort of like the two prodigies of Flesh and Blood, Lucas Oswald and Brody Spurlock. Uh, cool narratives yeah, yeah. we have going on. Because I think that the general demographic of Flesh and Blood tends to be in that like late 20s to early 30s uh, range. And Brody Spurlock mm-hmm. and Lucas Oswald are crushing events um, at 17 years old. Anyway, we have some deck techs coming out this month. Brody Spurlock's deck tech with Lexi is coming out uh, first. It's probably either slightly before this It'll podcast be release or yeah shortly after and then after that we're going to have ian zhang i believe his last name is zhang but better known as ian tcg to come on and do a jermai deck tech with us as well so two major decks going into road to national season if you're looking to pick those up um and have the additional deck tech and deck guide with them go ahead and check out the arsenal pass patreon in addition to those youtube videos with uh ian right another european player who's done really well i mean Kind of, I'm gonna say quietly, but if people haven't checked out his results, but and it was a ninth or tenth place finish ninth, at this yeah. PT top eight in Pro Tour Leo, top sixteen in New Jersey, uh, I believe top eight at the calling maybe at um, the Pro Tour was close to as uh, Worlds as well was close to. So Ian's done a lot in this game. I think he's he's Dutch, is he? I think. Yeah, I believe he is from Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah, and just yeah, uh, I just the and the amount of European players that have just been. Uh, continuing to put up results has been super impressive. I mean, we had Yuha on limited time only the other week who uh, I'd actually forgotten prior to, but also has a, a calling top eight from Utrecht last year mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, there's just a, um, yeah, these European players are very, very good, Brendan. Yeah. Is that the Utrecht, uh, Utrecht calling with the combo fi? Mm-hmm. It was the Stubby's fire. That was a wild one. <laughs> it was a good one. Uh, come on, cookout time. Let's do it.
So if you get your questions in for Commander Cookout, you can uh, drop them in the YouTube comments below. Let us know if you've got a Commander Cookout question. That's where our question last week came from. You can email them to us at arsenalpassfab at gmail.com. You can tweet at us. Or if you're a Patreon, you can drop them in the Commander Cookout Discord channel. This is another YouTube question this week, which comes from... I have to... Uh, yeah, I got, I got you. This comes from Sean uh, thank you. Fancher. 1870. I had to zoom in, so that's what I was doing there for a sec. Thank you. Um, and they say, potential command and cookout question. In this pod, you talked about Dash and Ultim being decks that can be built in wildly different ways. How do you approach sideboarding when you find yourself sitting across from these kind of heroes and don't know for sure what kind of deck you're playing against? Additionally, do you think this is difficult to predict duality in certain heroes? Do you think it is difficult to d- predict duality in certain heroes? Um is healthy for best of one game or just a source of feels bad for people that don't sideboard correctly. So yeah, dash and old hit maybe now, but this is not new to flesh and blood whatsoever. I would argue this was, yeah, I would argue this was actually most, most prevalent. I felt it when chain was a thing because chain was a deck that people tried to fatigue, right? And a lot of those fatigue decks also had aggro variants and you were potentially facing wildly different game plans. Um, But yeah, the, overall solution to this is you have to create a hedge board um, depending on how much risk you want to take and what sort of sideboard you think you can potentially win the matchup with right if you have all your cards in for the fatigue old him but you know against aggro hold him you're now 30 percent but if you add a few card you, you know add a few other cards that were maybe for the aggro old him matchup or the tempo old him matchup and maybe you end up around that 40 60 that might be a better decision right so yeah, ultimately, I do believe the answer is just figuring out what your hedge board looks like and creating multiple sideboard plans for the for these heroes. So, obviously, the hedge board if you're you have no idea what they're on, but also have an additional sideboard set up if you already know the archetype, whether it's later in the Swiss rounds or maybe you're in top eight. It's something we talked a lot about actually quite recently for calling Auckland. So we're playing Icelander and. One of the big decks preparing for the PT was Ultimate at the time. And then there was this emerging trend of uh, Imperial Warhorn recursion kind of um, fatigue, basically. Fatigue Icelander is the plan for Ultim versus these more proactive, you know, three card tens, endless winter sort of uh, decks with Pummel. So it looked, looked quite different. And then there's some people trying to do in between. So we, we were kind of addressing this for our plans for playing. We ended up playing Icelander at, at the Calling Auckland and, and sitting down and going, okay, when it comes to planning, how do we? How are we going to set up against an unknown Ultim during Swiss? What like what is our plan here? Um, and we ultimately came to the conclusion that we thought majority of people would play proactively, and we would probably set up that way. But then there was like certain players at the event that we probably thought would you know default to more of this kind of uh, fatigue version, and we wanted to have a board for that. And then like Brendan's saying, we set up this hedge board as well. And then I ended up playing the hedge board quite a lot because I was like really worried that people were on the strategy. So I guess, you know, Brendan, you talked about having a hedge board, having the sideboards for either of the potential plans or any of the potential plans that might show up, you know, if it's fatigue versus aggro versus, you know, dash control versus boost dash or hybrid dash, for instance. But then I think there's also this kind of like sliding scale where maybe you move mm-hmm. along it depending on how confident you feel, what you think the the likelihood of the event is. Like if we go back to the chain example, there was kind of this thing where it's like, okay, here's this, this, this setup where you can like, you, we feel like you can really confidently beat a fatigue deck. But if you put, if you, if you present that setup, it involves different equipment It involves playing, you know, basically not playing your best piece of equipment in, in carrying house and playing a piece of equipment in tunic or eighth iron weave, which gives you significantly less edge into an aggressive deck. And you could, you could reduce your matchup by like 20, 30% in that matchup. Uh, so it is this real kind of dichotomy. And I know Sean asked, 
you know, do we think it's good for the game, Brendan? I, I think it's really good for the game. I think it's really interesting for best of one. I think it forces you to understand how to have the right 80 card configuration for any given sort of metagame and event, how to adapt on the fly once you learn information between like Swiss and Top Cut um, and, and have enough preparation to understand how to play against these different types of potential strategies. I also think it's good for the game despite it being best of one and you being punished mm-hmm. heavily for making the wrong decision. I think that it's actually kind of boring when it's extremely predictable what what that deck uh what a specific hero like what archetype they'll be on and you just sort of have this one plan you don't really have to deviate or be creative right because even if you do have the hedge board sometimes you're going to go in with the wrong board maybe you're like okay i really thought this person was going to be on fatigue and they end up being on aggro one of the things that i find um enjoyable in flesh and blood depending on the result i guess is being able to adapt on the fly and actually adjust that strategy despite you going in with the preconception that you thought they were going to be playing a different archetype and i think that when you come to the sideboard there are there are there's a very much a sliding scale with certain cards so you talked about chain you talked about siding out things like carry and husk but there was also cards like eclipse eclipse Mm -hmm. just not good against aggro but it was one card one card one blue card that could go in your deck and would give you like a 10% plus edge against a fatigue deck. It was very important to have against fatigue. So it's like, you know what? I'll take, I'll take a no block card, put it in my deck and I'll deal with that against aggro. But now I actually have a game plan versus fatigue and the risk just made sense. Um, if you weren't 100% sure what archetype your opponent was on. Yep. Very, very true. And I guess the last thing on this from my perspective is it, it is, I think it just creates a more interesting dynamic to the game. And I've had this, you know, I've had this happen. I had this, actually, I got punished. Like, you, you talk about getting punished and what that means. I got a little bit punished at uh, the Calling Auckland. I played against uh, Michael Fang in, I think, the last round of day one of Swiss. And, you know, I was like, I, I think he is someone who leans towards playing more proactive decks. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hedge. And I got punished by the hedge. I just, I drew sort of a bad combination of cards a couple of times with these cards. I didn't want my deck against him. That punished me for not being able to effectively play tempo into him. And... You know, I lost the game, and it's it's uh, it's something that can punish you. And I think it's interesting to see how this kind of dynamic evolves. I, I think this idea, you know, we've always done this. We like decks. We like showing up with decks that are a little bit off the beaten path. Maybe the people know the hero, but do we know? Do they know the strategy we're going to be playing, for instance? And I think that is something that is quite enjoyable about this game. Mm-hmm. And I think it gives you can give you an edge in events as well. And I, I want that to stay. I think it's an interesting part of the game. Yes, I think uh, it's definitely a bonus for us when we're looking at a deck. And then one of the points about it is that nobody's going to know what the hell is going on when they sit across from this. Um, there was also, I mean, specifically about the the chain meta, there, it was interesting because you would go into some matchups and the actual construction or archetype, quote unquote, of the deck was pretty irrelevant. And what you had the hedge for was how you expected the player to play. So specifically decks like Dorinthia. Dorinthia is not a defensive deck, but the opponent could either play aggressively or defensively. And if they played defensively and you didn't have any tools to to deal with that strategy, you would lose. So you would always have to hedge for both strategies. I felt the same way against Dash. Obviously Dash could be built in multiple ways where Dorinthia was just kind of a singular way, but Dash as well, you could have an aggro Dash deck that tried to fatigue you and you had to be prepared to sort of deal with that strategy. And thus came sort of this... Uh, what I feel is one of the more creative things you can do, which is how to develop an effective hedge board against some of these more elusive decks. Mm-hmm. People start to even do hybrid things with Dash. They'd be super aggressive early 
buy cards defensively early because you have to block because you can't, don't have cha- uh, shackles sort of generating card advantage. And then once you got to the card advantage engine, but you were down on cards from blocking, they would pivot to fatigue. It's, it's really yes. interesting. It's been, always been an interesting dynamic with this game, which is I, I really yeah. like. So, which, by the way, the that was on. the best strategy, which uh, nobody was employing at the time, but that was actually the hardest strategy to deal with because they don't give you room to set up your deck and they punish you for having these clunky cards that are meant for fatigue. In, and then they start fatiguing you and your the bottom of your deck looks like shit. <laughs> you just can't do any. That was actually the hardest strategy to deal with by far was this sort of uh, this this uh, this game plan that played aggro first and then adapted to fatigue. Yeah, super interesting. Yep, exactly. Cool. Well, thank you for the question, Sean. Um, get your questions in for the Commander Cookout. All right. So let's talk about Monarch Hayden. Um, 10,000 foot view, bingo card, hit that. A set that's divided by talents, right? We have Shadow and Light. Um, let's talk about the original release a bit. Uh, we can sort of go back to early conceptions of the format when Monarch first released. I do think that the, the primary thought in the community was that light was just better than shadow. I'm not saying the best players had that ideology, but it did seem that the general rhetoric was that, you know, maybe prism was overpowered. The shadow heroes were a little bit too hard to play. You would, you're at risk of getting seriously punished if you played them incorrectly were on the counterpart if you played light you had a bit more room to play more loose i would say um especially even in your the construction of your deck and something like draft um hayden anything you have anything else you want to add to sort of the early days of monarch here no i mean for those that weren't playing during monarch and that's gonna be a lot of both players in flesh and blood and our our listeners and viewers of arsenal pass i mean our pod started the week you know, two weeks before Monarch dropped, our third episode was the set review for for Monarch Limited, and it's it's a set that we actually played a lot of. Particularly me and Brendan, we played a lot of sealed. You know, we'd be getting on the webcam, we'd be jamming games, um, and the the set didn't really have a, a full competitive season, right? As James White kind of talked about when they announced that they were going to use this for the national season, it only really got a competitive season in parts of Asia Pacific, basically, basically only New Zealand and and Taiwan from memory, uh, and it is a really it's an interesting set having this it was the first talented set we saw obviously like you say split by shadow and light and i think the perception when it came out was definitely that light got to play in a way where you played a bit more linear you asked the you know you asked the questions you only had to worry about your life total really and sometimes your threat density whereas the Mm -hmm. shadow heroes had to worry about life total threat density their own potential other resource in deck or life total depending if you're Livia or Chain. And even for Livia, sometimes you had to worry about your deck as well. So mm-hmm. uh, there was just more dynamics. So I think people linked towards Light, famous, famously uh, the top eight Monarch Limited Calling in Auckland that year had six people drafting Light Heroes and then just one Livia and one Chain. Um, I think people learned a lot from that format. I don't think you would typically see that moving forward. But I guess the big question is going to be, are we going to see shift in dynamics or are people still going to lean towards these these light heroes because of the ease of play and uh, the perceived power level? I think we will see shifting dynamics. I would actually classify both shadow heroes as pitch stack decks, um, where if you if you actually don't pitch stack ever uh, and you, you don't employ that whatsoever in your strategy, the shadow heroes are kind of a bad choice for you. Uh, both Levia and Chain, Chain for obvious reasons, because you're going to be banishing your entire deck in a game of limited, but Levia as well, because you need to fuel up that graveyard. Um, and you do want to sort of have a back-to-back explosive turn so you don't get fatigued out. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you in terms of light 
being the more approachable. I do think that in modern day flesh and blood with people being much more comfortable with some of these mechanics of the game, uh, we are not going to see such a heavy, uh, heavy favor towards the light heroes. I do think they're definitely easier to play, less punishing and powerful in their own right. You know, maybe somewhat except for Bolton. <laughs> we'll talk about Bolton and what makes, what, what can make Bolton good, but Prism specifically. I also think that Monarch is a format where you will see second cycle a lot of the time. Um, I would argue most of the games. Uh, yeah, it, it really depends in draft. There's two kind of, so this is what I was going to sort of add a tack onto your Livia comment. Sometimes uh, with uh, Livia, that, that is not the case. Second cycle and, you know, pitch taking is not as necessarily with Livia depending on the power level of your deck. And, power level of cards that we're going to, I think, talk about because there's been a big learning probably from outsiders and uprising around generics, which we can we can definitely talk about. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people had necessarily those learnings when it came to Monarch. People were more looking for the synergy and stuff. There are some really powerful generics I think often got overlooked. But yeah, I would say, you know, maybe my experience in draft was around 40 to 50% of the games went to second cycle and it really depended on like a Prism and, and obviously Chain is often doing that. But Chain often, you know, if you're playing as Chain, you, you often wouldn't be if you're sitting on the other side as a, a Prism or a, a Olivia or a Bolton, you often would get second cycle. So it really depended on the matchup, I think. Yeah, one thing I want to mention about Monarch is obviously there's Illusionist in the format. There is not a lot of poppers. <laughs> Definitely not. No, there's there's not. I mean, it's the same as most sets, I guess. It's the same in Uprising though, right? Uh, yeah, less, I just know, there was less I know from Uprising, right? Personal experience, it did feel like in a general draft pod, people were fighting very aggressively for the poppers. There was not a lot to go around, and it was a big factor in something like sealed was opening enough because you could get sealed packs, you would open zero, right? And you had a mm-hmm. tough time against Prism with some of those. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I want to say technically there is more poppers because of the brute cards, but at a at a generic level, I think there's around mm-hmm. the same as. Um, yeah, talking to Jack. So next question is, did we like it? And I think you already answered this. For me, the main reason I like the Monarch is probably a bit biased and not still true. And I think that was because what I thought was good in the format was definitely at the time very contrarian to, I think, what generally players of Flesh and Blood thought was good. So I felt like I could have a lot of fun with the format <laughs> playing Shadow Heroes. Um, and like we talked about, moving you know, moving into modern day Flesh and Blood, I don't think there's going to be such an affinity towards the Light Heroes that you can just sort of free roll some of these Shadow Heroes. I would play most of the pods I would play. There would only be you know one to two, maybe three Shadow players. There was a heavy, heavy lean towards Prism. Um, and it felt like you could do very busted things and sort of exploit players trying to do that. Uh, some uh, Playing over 30 cards, do you think that that will be correct uh, in the in Monarch as we revisit the format? Um, often I would say it's it's often going to be a format where I think you you just play the the best cards you have available to you. The where that might vary is depending on what your kind of. I think you've got to identify like what your strategy is to win each game when you draft in Monarch. Is it going to be that you know you have this ability to control games and potentially fatigue out damage for you know most of the the heroes? Um, you know, of course, Light Illusionist Prism doesn't have a weapon you know that can attack. But does have a really powerful one with the right cards in the deck in the form of um, of Iris Reality. But then Bolton, basically, the, the the thing I think people should remember about this one is that every deck has to utilize cards as a resource. So it's probably going to often be correct to play more than thirty cards in this one because 
you know, you have no weapon with light illusionist. Bolton has to do it to charge soul. Chain obviously is doing it to banish cards to soul shackle. Levia is doing it to discard cards to things like uh, meat axe, for instance. So cards are a big resource in this format. And so it's probably going to be often correct to play more than 30 cards to give yourself more resource like you would, you know, playing equipment to start with more life. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's talk about the heroes. Um, so starting off with Prism. The general strategy of Prism, uh, I think, <laughs> usually I want as many Heralds as possible. I feel like Heralds are definitely the way to go over any sort of utilization of the weapon or creating these, um, you know, creating those, those Spectral Shield tokens or even, I, I didn't really enjoy playing cards like, like Genesis uh, in my deck or like the Parables. Sometimes they were good, but they felt like kind of a liability most of the time. I did find myself usually preferring big Heralds when I could. Um, cards like Dreamweaver is really important for those kind of strategies because I do think that if you are playing a longer game with Prism, um, you can, of course, counter, counter pitch stack them, track where their poppers are, and then use your Dreamweavers accordingly. Hayden, your general, your general high level of Prism and the strategy, what, was, what did you find favorable? I think there's a couple of different ways you can play it. So, of course, you have the Heralds that you just talked about. And if you, you could draft a deck with a great amount of Heralds in it, and you know you play this quite explosive powerful you know these cards are above rate but what's going to happen potentially is that you get popped on your first attack and you you lose your turn you give yourself a little ip2 penalty because you decided not to block out any attacks on the previous turn and now your opponents basically swung tempo for one card to get back to their hand with three cards and and you could just lose the game to damage right you could die over sort of four or five turn cycles so i think that was often a strategy that people they might have these kind of heralds but they would often you know block the two cards come in with one big herald for instance and kind of chip away at the game that way and that kind of transitioned as well into maybe you you make one or two shields over the course of the game and you kind of protect one of those shields as a potential weapon to sit behind so maybe it's like okay i come in with my um my uh my herald potentially or i just come in with my my iris my iris weapon and um because Iris, so Iris of Reality, I want to make sure I get this right, gives, is the, what gives the go again? Is it the Iris or the, yeah, Iris is the one that gives go again. So you'd, you'd often come in with your shield, which comes in for four of your Iris attack and then come in with a, a, a Herald afterwards, for instance, right? Um, so protecting a, protecting a shield is quite important because of the go again. Um, you know, it's not like, I guess, Luminaris where you, you, you're pitching a yellow just naturally gives you that go again. So you're, not all your Heralds get go again. Um, so it's a bit of a dynamic there. And then there was also these kind of more controlly prism decks, which would just purely try and sit behind a shield or two, draft really defensive cards, draft a lot of three blocks, maybe trade, mm -hmm. try and trade for cards with an on-hit herald that, you know, threatens to make another shield at some point in the game to try and buy some cards, but mostly just kind of being quite, quite defensive. So there's, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't say it's like hard and fast one or the other. I think there's kind of a, a split dichotomy, but there is cards like um, Phantasmify and Spears of Surreality and Spears of Surreality having natural go again. That was a card that could help people go a little bit wider as well. Yeah, I think uh, like a lot of uh, prison play patterns due to the lack of go again and how conditional it was on the weapon, depending if you had generics or the Spears of Surreality, which I do believe was a good card, was doing things like block with two cards for six, then come in with what is effectively two for eight with something like a Herald of Protection, Herald of Ravages. Like that is just general good math, as we know, in Flesh and Blood. Enigma Chimera. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's talk about Bolton. I think that Bolton is the worst hero um, in this set, but I do think that Bolton has access to cards that are not 
not majestic that are legitimate bombs, <laughs> like oppressive bombs. And that card specifically, I think we can't even talk about Bolton without talking about V of the Vanguard. Um, I think V of the Vanguard is one of the best limited cards ever printed, and it's tough to deal with. Obviously, it shows up, you're going to run into decks with it more in something like Draft than uh, than Sealed, because I think that V of the Vanguard and something like Sealed is not enough to bring you into Bolton. You still need supporting cards. But in Draft, you can be sure that the Boltons at your table are looking for this card and this card specifically. Just really, really tough to deal with. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read that out because I know that it's been a while since uh, it has. we've sort of played Monarch as that loads. Um, so V of the Vanguard is a Bolton specialization. It's a light warrior attack. Um, it costs one pitches for two attacks for three and defense for three but it says as an additional card co- as additional cost by via the vanguard you may charge your hero soul any number of times attacks you control on this combat chain get plus one for each light card charge this way so that includes your weapons which is why these be via the vanguard turns have can be so explosive and i think that monarch is a game of pivot turns often where you will have players sort of jostling for position throughout a lot of the game and then eventually take damage and then come in with some big big turn whether it's a v the vanguard turn to spirit of surreality into a herald turn etc hayden any your thoughts on bolton uh, i don't think bolton's the worst hero <laughs> unlike you um i think bolton has i think bolton often underperformed when monarch was first released and it was because people sort of i think often focused on the wrong cards a lot of the time they focused on this whole idea of i need to as many charge cards as possible and those cards are card disadvantage those are not the cards that are going to win you the game and for each of those cards you need cards that are above rate because those cards are actually slightly below rate if you're charging you know to, to get the use so for instance bolt of courage is this zero for three attack mm-hmm. that as an initial cost has charge so you're coming you're using two cards to come in for zero for three um, on hit does draw cards, so it does have real and on hit, but it doesn't have a break point like you do with something like Snatch, for instance. So two cards, zero for three. Not that exciting. But on the flip side of that, you have cards like Valiant Thrust, which represent one for seven. You know, it's a one for four attack, but if you charge this turn, it comes in for, for plus three. So that's seven at red. So you, you needed, these are the cards you needed. These are the win conditions you needed. And I think people often maybe were a bit too focused on charging soul as opposed to having these payoff cards. Um, and that's why some of the decks, I think, often looked a bit askew. They weren't as powerful. They weren't putting the results. But what I'll say about Bolton, I think, is that it has some of the most ridiculous turns you can do in, in Limited Flesh and Blood. And that's super fun. Like, but you know, between Via the Vanguard that you talked about, even some of these Majestics that you could get access to, like a Bolting Blade or, or Lumina Ascension, um, you could do some pretty disgusting stuff. Gallantry Gold enables some of that to do these kind of like you know i mean what's the there's, an, there's a majestic axe one as well um oh, that gives you spill axes. blood spill blood like you could have ridiculous turns with bolton doing you know upwards of 20 20 damage pretty easily so uh with it with setup so i i enjoy drafting bolton quite a lot uh and i think there's some really easy signals to get you into bolton like via the vanguard a lot of some of the generics are really really good in bolton as well in terms of what the archetypes look like i think you know there is this kind of just all all our aggro Bolton deck where you you draft hard, you know a certain amount of charge cards probably a third of your deck you draft a third of your deck being these like payoff role players like Valiant Thrust um, Battlefield Blitz like we talked about and then just kind of supporting generics and, and things and then there's this kind of more considered decks where you might do a bit of pitch stacking like you talked about Brennan set up this one really big combo-esque turn with with Bolton and um, mm. and win that way because you, you you can fatigue with Bolton if you're charging too much and, and your opponent's kind of you don't have a way to push damage and win the game yeah um some cards that are sub majestic 
that I really like in Bolton are cards like Battlefield Blitz, Valiant Thrust, like you mentioned, and Take Flight. Um, <clears throat> I find Take the flight, play pattern. Yeah, I find the play pattern with Bolton can be a lot. Block with two cards, go to my turn, play something with charge, um, which is not great value, but then set up for a sort of critical mass of a turn using these cards that can go wide and have great weights, banishing cards from soul. Um, I I know it was more of a thing in Seal, but I found that Monarch was a format where you would have sort of middling turns back to back, and then you would have these quote-unquote pivot turns where you would have these very large turns that have either been set up via you stacking your deck or even just naturally drawing them and you having resources like having cards in your soul to be able to facilitate that kind of thing. Hey, and I have to ask you because you don't think Bolt is the worst. What do you think is the worst hero? Mm, I think Levy is the worst hero, but it's it's conditional and it's conditional on how many people at the table are drafting it, um, which we can talk about in a second. The, the last card I wanted to shout out for for Bolt and you were shouting out some some commons is, um, is Adrenaline Rush. I think you know, it's mm-hmm. the adrenaline rush is the two cost for four at base, but if you have less life than your opponent, it gets plus three at red. And that can also, because it gets the plus tech, enable you to utilize Bolton's hero ability and give it go again. Um, so it can help you with some pretty big turns. There's, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Belittle, obviously, cr- crazy belittle minimalism that fits. You know, we know how good that card is in Constructed and that those pairings of cards, also very good in Monarch Limited. Brandish. Yeah. Just to quickly talk about some light cards, <clears throat> some cards I really enjoyed were things like Rising Solitude, <clears throat> Solitude, which is one for five, and on hit, it goes to your soul. Just a really good rate there. Um, I personally did not like Glisten. <clears throat> I know some people really liked Glisten in Prism, but for me, uh, it was not a card I enjoyed. One of my favorite things about Monarch as a format is I there are some legitimate sideboard cards that you will be drafting that you might not play against every matchup, things like Impenetrable Belief and potentially Blinding Beam. Um, but yeah, I mean, did you have any success with Glisten specifically? In Prism, yeah, definitely. I think mm. in, in Prism, more so in Sealed, I would say. It was like, a, I think it was a bomb in Sealed. You could actually like pitch it early and set it up for late game in these kind of like Prism mirrors. And um, if you had, you know, you, you had to be quite defensive, I think, in that format. And Glisten was like pretty close to a bomb, I think. In Draft, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lot lower on that card. I'm excited to revisit some of these cards though and, and see if maybe my play patterns and the way I look at the games change though, because um, that card's mm-hmm. interesting. Rising Soul Tide, I thought was always an under undervalued card because it's, it's, rate is so good and people kind of um, undervalued that i think yeah um another card i really enjoyed was illuminate just that zero for four blocks for three um you're able to get good value off of it with your single card hand also has the on hit trigger go to soul uh yeah, snatch the blocks we- of three yes please yeah exactly before we talk about the shadow heroes um what do you think about equipment in monarch and how important is it it's the most important equipment set, I think, that we've, we've had in Flesh and Blood. I think the power level of the equipment in Monarch is so far above the power level in most of the other sets we've seen from an equipment standpoint. You know, if we're kind of using the baseline of uh, of probably Tails, well, not even Tails of Aria had some really powerful equipment. I, I just think that, you know, Stubby Hammer is um, Blood Drop Brigade. Like if you're, you're opposing gold. Bolton doesn't have Gallantry Gold, it drastically changes how you could who's the shadow beast yeah who's yeah, the shadow Evan beast falls. it feels like it's a it's literally a prerequisite for playing uh levia to be honest even fold yeah. also feels like that for me playing i if i don't have an even fold my levia deck like it feels drastically different i think um mm-hmm. yeah the, the equipment very very uh you know you talk about dream weavers to guarantee mm-hmm. you know your big kind of hero turn yeah it, the equipment in the set very very important plus we're not even talking about the spell void on those equipment 
Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, the Dreamweaver specifically allows you to play cards like Phantasmify on the first cycle, which can just be absolutely disgusting in something like Draft for a set like Monarch, where a lot of the cards do block for two, at least a lot of the generics do. So your opponent's going to have a <laughs> d- decent amount of trouble in the set. That. Yeah, equipment in the set are, are easily first pickable. You know, with let's look at outsiders and and people have really come down on equipment. You know, they're not three bear tunic is kind of seen as you know the, the premier mm-hmm. piece of equipment, but outside of that, people are like yeah, so so. You know, I like want to pick up a couple pieces of iron rot, but otherwise I'm you know seekers equipment whatever that come around later I might pick them up. Um, if I'm Azalea, I want to make sure I have the headpiece. But in Monarch, it's like no, like uh, there's a lot of equipment I would I would just straight up first pick um, in the set and and be very happy with it. Mm-hmm. All right, <clears throat> let's talk about the Shadow Hero, specifically talking uh, Levia first. Um, the Levia deck, I think, is interesting. Like you said, the power level of your deck determines what how you're going to play that. <clears throat> how you're going to play out a game can either be first cycle sort of beat down, or it can be something like a second cycle setup where you've filled your graveyard to a point where you can kind of consistently back-to-back present your opponent with overwhelming turns that they simply can't block out. I found that to be my more, the the game plan that I would, usually land on um but to circle back to who's the shadow beast does feel like a prerequisite in something like levia if you're playing levia and you're just doing two block then attack with a big attack i find that unless you're on second cycle and you filled that graveyard you're going to actually run out of your graveyard you're going to run out of sort of resources and you just can't keep that play pattern up forever which is why things like who's the shadow beast and dread screamer which has a similar effect giving you this go again giving you this ability to go wide so your opponent actually leaks damage a lot of your opponents playing against you as Levia will off to block you out um, unless you know they they think that you're going to be on something like a second cycle plan. Uh, cards that I think are really really good in Levia that were maybe slightly underplayed: uh, Unworldly Bellow, Dread Screamer, which we talked about. I found Dreadwood Rumbler to be reasonably powerful. It doesn't block as well. Um, second cycle convulsions from the bellows of hell getting that dominate i feel like evasion can be pretty important in a deck like levia for actually closing out these games um and i do think that the math on endless maw is just pretty nice it's pretty ridiculous well when it comes to levia so if you're going to play all these cards that are banish effects first of all you have to be able to fill your graveyard uh, like you say brennan but there are, there are definitely ways to do it right and there are ways to do it pretty quickly and it's just by attacking it's by blocking and then you have access to some really powerful cards like Endless Maw, like Dread Screamer. If you're going to play all these cards on first cycle and really go after your opponent, you better kill them because uh, otherwise you mm-hmm. are very likely to just then pivot into this defensive sort of strategy and uh, you die to your blood debt or just eventually fatigue in second cycle because you're then having to use cards to try and trigger that effect and it's just going to be inefficient every turn you're playing one card that you're not going to set up because you'll take too much damage. So you better be able to have this really powerful deck. I think that strategy is much tougher I think that is kind of a, that's a trap. That's the trap strategy people get into in their first draft, Livia. I think the more impactful strategy is a little bit like what you said. Like, you know, I think you, you make really good points there about this kind of second cycle being important. I think that's definitely kind of one of the most powerful, almost consistent strategies is to kind of set up this like second cycle deck, fill your graveyard with the relevant stuff. What can be tough about that is that, you know, six power cards are at a premium. So mm-hmm. you're not going to get as many of the generics if there's two two to three brutes at the table. If there's three brutes at the table, I personally I don't want to be in Livia. I only want to be if there's if there's if there's two brutes, um, and ideally one. Uh, but if if that's the case, you know you're going to struggle to get enough six attacks to fill your graveyard, which can be tough as well. Um, so then second cycle, you might you could have misses. You know you miss on a dread screamer that can be pretty pretty devastating. So the cards that I'm 
a lot more interested in is cards that can set me up for a mid-game as well. So it might not even be a second cycle, but just kind of set me up for mid-game, either by making my opponent make a decision about how they want to play. Are they going to play defensive? Are they going to leak a little bit of damage, try and present back damage? And if they leak a little bit of damage, then I can easily set up these end-game states, like you say. And if they don't leak damage, I can actually potentially fit, fatigue them. Um, and that's why I like playing 130 cards often in, in Livia. And that's because of Meat Axe. I think that, that weapon's really good. Uh, and you have uh, the cards like Brandish become really important for that strategy. I think Brandish is severely underdrafted in, in Livia because even if you're just trying to set up your graveyard, one of the things you can do early game is go, okay, here's a brand pitcher blue, here's my Brandish, here's my Meat Axe. I'm threatening potentially three cards or two cards for, for eight or nine damage, which is, is really important. And I'm also helping to fill up my graveyard at the same time. So I think, and going wide, presenting damage, you know, causing issues to my opponent. Yeah, cards I really like for the mid-game that you specifically talk about in Levia are cards like Pulping and Smash with Big Tree. You can't have too many of them in your deck because they do block for zero, but they give you a way to attack and pressure your opponent without having to suffer blood debt and pay that tax in the mid-game. Um, I also think cards like Dreadwood Rumbler are pretty reasonable in doing Amazing. that as well. Yep. Yep, so, very good card. Outside of that, if we look at the generic shadow cards in something like Levia, uh, not looking at the Majestics cards, mm-hmm. that one card that I really liked, I feel like is underplayed, is something like Howl from Beyond. I do think that having that reach in Levia and being able to go over the top of your opponent is very powerful. Um, I think one card that consistently underperformed for me, I think in both decks, was probably Void Wraith. Ghostly Visit, uh, also quite a good card. What were your thoughts on on Void Wraith? Uh, I really like Void Wraith and, and Chain. Um, I'm less excited about it in Livia. So that was the next thing I was going to talk about. Is there is a Livia, there's a recursion Livia deck that you can definitely draft, which utilizes Hell from Beyond and go more, more so Ghostly Visit than Void Wraith because of the, you know, the interaction of that being four costs between those two cards. So I like you, I definitely prefer Ghostly Visit. But that that deck is also I saw um Jason Chung draft that deck and I was like, wow, that is really powerful. Just basically like banishing and recurring like Hell from Beyond pretty aggressively through sort of turns like three to to seven and either you've just destroyed and killed your opponent or you probably lose the game after that but um it was it was it was really powerful uh the the other cards i i really like in shadow i mean consuming after aftermath is like a first pick for me i think it has mm-hmm. evasion on it i think evasion is really underrated in monarch because of the side the whole idea like the set is powerful but because you use your deck as a resource you can get to this end game state where maybe you fatigue and having a, a you know cards like consuming aftermath that have this ability to have um have dominate and have evasion are actually really important agreed and it's a six uh, attack as well it's popper what are your thoughts on ray of hope and what's the other one called eclipse existence mm-hmm. yeah not eclipse eclipse Ex- yeah eclipse uh, existence i think these cards well famously pack one pick one on the oh uh, lss youtube God. channel <laughs> sasha markovic first picked a eclipse existence from a quite a powerful pack i would say yeah and par for the course with people at lss you know nowadays in the retrospect he'll be like yeah i was kidding no dude that's cap he legitimately thought that card was first pickable that card is freaking garbage <laughs> like it's so bad like i not only is it only coming into a specific matchup but i even think those matchups like i don't even play it most of the time because it, it's just not that good and it blocks for zero like i don't know but yeah, I totally forgot about that. I'm so happy you reminded me of that garbage card. Also, Soul Harvest and Soul... We're about to talk about Shane, but Soul Harvest, Soul Reaping, great cards. Those are specialization so, cards for both. Soul Reaping and, especially. Yeah, Soul oh, Reaping is bomb. That's that's the V of the Vanguard for Chain, right? Yep. 
Every time you yeah. play that, I, I remember like if you played that often, you'd be like, man, I feel like my win rate just went up by 20% in this game. Um, yeah. In constructed as well. <laughs> yes, also true. Oh, damn, I banished it. Eclipse Existence. Uh, I think basically the problem with these cards is that Monarch is is a power set we talked about, but you use your deck as a resource and you do want consistency to be able to do that. Otherwise, people can pivot strategies. This card, while it's blue and it has some some really great utility to be played, it can't block and you can only have so many of these cards. So it's a real... Ne- I like basically think you can really never play this in, in Levia. I think this only has utilization personally in, in Chain uh, and it's like sideboard at at best obviously and then i think the it's uh what's the other card it's um ray of the light vision sorry ray of hope i think is infinitely more more playable uh because it's a light card that you can charge with bolton for instance um it has you know this kind of utility and these really wide turns um because it gives all attacks plus one uh while attacking shadow hero but again it's a cyborg card but i just think that it has it has more, you know, if you can trigger this on both things, so you pay one, it's going to go into your soul and it's going to give, you know, maybe uh, this triggers on weapons, so it triggers on the axes. It gives you like plus three from the attack or something over the turn. That That's really good. Mm-hmm. And obviously yeah. it turns on Bolton's hero ability as well. So let's move on to Chain. Before we talk about the Shadow Runeblade cards, I first want to mention cards like Vexing Malice and Arcanite Crackle. Uh, these cards don't have Blood Debt, but they're very good in this format because there is no Arcane Barrier. There's only Spell Void, so your opponent is going to have to pay a very real cost to block that Arcane Damage, and your Arcane Damage can also be inevitability to win the game. It's a form of evasion um, sort of in this format. Uh, anyway, let's let's talk about Chain. Chain is, uh, I think Chain is good in this format. Uh, you do need a deck that can support Chain, in my opinion. I do I do find most of the time you're going to second cycle, but the thing about Chain in Limited is Riftbind is legal and so is Seeds of Agony. So you can kind of you can kind of maybe predict what a lot of your endgames are going to be looking like uh, in this format, stacking up those non-attack actions and then having one to two just absolutely freaking massive uh, Riftbinds. It's tough to deal with for the opponent. Hayden, your thoughts? Yeah, Ch- Chain's a really interesting hero, and I think... Chain, how you drafted and how you played Chain really evolved and, and developed over the time yes, it did. we had with with Monarch. So Chain, fundamentally, a bunch of your cards are pretty poor rates. Uh, they, well, they you know they can be these shadow cards. You know, we just have Void Wraith, not a very exciting card, right? But you can play these cards and banish, obviously, which is super super important. But if you're shackling every turn and you you just have these kind of underrate cards, your opponent can actually pretty effectively block you out. So what you need, first of all, arcane damage, like you talked about, Brennan, that is really important. And arcane damage does a lot of work in this format. It's going to end games really well for you. Obviously, um, Galaxy Black also has this ability when triggered to to deal an arcane damage um, if it, if it hits. So you do have access to some pretty good ways to deal arcane damage um there's also is it uh dimensional gateway i always mix them up yeah it's dimensional gateway that you know off the opt potentially gives you arcane damage i think that maybe even more consistently something like uh rifted torment uh you can it's just going to consistently do one damage you can sit it in your blood debt to have some sort of end game inevitability Mm -hmm. you can have it sit in that blood debt with something like a rifted reality honestly the key to chain end game um is stacking your deck having things like the non-attack actions and the rift binds rift bind is a broken card like there's a reason why it's banned um but you also want to have access to go again you want to be going wide uh, and presenting your, your opponent with a large sort of end game attack that they just simply can't block and i feel like it's pretty reasonable to do if there's one to two chains um at the table if there's not um chain can still be a good deck if you're not just like this all-in combo deck because i mean that's a lot of card advantage <laughs> like it's the same thing that makes chain and good mm-hmm. and constructed so there's the, and that's the other thing I, that's the kind of thing i was getting to is that 
some of the most important cards for chain are actually your generics and your shadow cards, cards that have much better on rate. And um, you want to pair those with, you know, the ability to play maybe one card in sort of the early game from Banish and then what, like Brennan says, set up to this potential late game. But you want to be able to push damage with some of your shadow cards. So, you know, some of the cards are important. We just talked about um, Consuming Aftermath. That's a really, really great card. Uh, Lunatide Plunderer, just these cards that just uh, are two card sevens that take your sort of hand from the opponent and let you get into the mid to late game with mm. enough life that you can potentially actually just stack some cards like Brennan said. So if you can if you can buy life total for the mid to end game, then you have more leeway with your kind yeah. of banish. And then also if you, so you're not forced to play cards for bad rates. And then the other thing you can do is also you can potentially just play another card off. So then cards like Brandish become become quite important. How from from Beyond in particular. Um, and just generic like Stony Wooten Hogs, um, Out Muscles, just, just these cards, Seek Horizons, just these cards that are just good rates at a generic level. Um, Captain's Call, although rare, also you know, very good and chain for these go wide end games like Brendan's talking about. It's, it is hard to go wide in the end game. And that's something you do need to understand. You know, it's not like in Classic Constructor where you're like, well, I just have all these blue cards that give me go again. I have Mothering Skies and Captain's Calls mm-hmm. and all this. You, you know, yeah. you don't you don't have access to that. Dragon. Exactly, yeah. in Limited. So uh, you do have to be a lot more careful about how you kind of, you need yeah. to chip some damage in the mid game. And so generics and, and just good cards are important. A card I really enjoy as a one or two of to facilitate that is something like Seeping Shadows. I think it's incredibly uh, powerful. I mean, Chain in Limited, it's the deck stack is really easy and you're basically doing the same thing you'd be trying to do in Constructed, which is you want like the three to four blue hand. You want the Seeping Shadows to come off so you can have the extra go again. And then you're just presenting these massive attacks because, you know, if you have three Rift Binds on the final turn, the idea that Hayden was talking about, right, is you want a Chain deck that can pressure the opponent enough that you can keep the game somewhat at parity because nobody beats you in the end game if you have even a resemblance of the the deck the quote-unquote deck of of chain like the end game is is so powerful but if you do literally nothing until then you're not going to have the life and you're not going to have enough room to actually execute it so i think that's kind of the balance with chain there yep yep yep, you definitely need to have the yeah you have to have both aspects to it yeah generics um unless you have anything else to mention just, I mean, just quickly, the, the generics are really good, but you've got to think about where you're going to use them. So let's take, we didn't talk about Trimmer of Arathiel just then, but that card is is really great as this kind of, um, you know, this card in chain. But again, going wide is really hard. So this one for six is like super cost efficient. I can do so much my turn, but how are you actually going to get the go again? You've got to be thinking about that. So that card uh, can be really useful in the game. It is a really powerful card, but you've also got to know how to set it up. Um, I mean, the, the, the card that I think was criminally sort of underdrafted in the set and drafted a little bit later than I thought initially with Surging Militia. That card is crazy in <laughs> almost any deck. You pair it with, yeah. you know, pumps with um, the the light pump or just the generic the generic pump, which is also a really good card. Um, Warmonger's Ritual. That Surging Militia, you know, you've got this two card for, or three card effectively with a pitch for eight where it's like each time your opponent blocks, you know, can turn into like a three card 11 that they have to block with two or three cards, for instance. Um, and then the, the other one I just go back to is Brandish. That card is... Yeah. Um, you, t- you mentioned Tremor of Arathiel. I think it's a really powerful card in Chain. Um, I think it's also an excuse to play something like Spew Shadow because it works really well with Tremor of Arathiel. If you don't get it, you know, draw a card and you actually banish it. Um, one thing to mention about the generics in Monarch is they all block for two. <laughs> so this is why this value, yep. this, 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 this set has a, a sort of low block value overall. Hayden, is, is it the lowest block value of any set in Flesh and Blood? I believe it is. I think it might be, but it's also skewed by brute cards having zero blocks. So the mm-hmm. averages, but I think the, the, 
I want to say the like the median is pretty close to some of the other sets where you've had a lot of these two blocks as well. Um, mm-hmm. But it is one of the lowest, and yeah, the generics all blocking for two is, is super relevant. I mean, most sets now we've, we're seeing generics block for two. We've just had some exceptions with this past set, you know, come to fight um, at the common level, but majority mm-hmm. you, you'll see these two blocks. Yeah, so I want to hit on the Ironhide first. Uh, just better in multiples makes a lot of sense, right? You're able to utilize something like a blue if you pitch it for it, block with multiple pieces of armor. Ironhide can be incredibly good at facilitating something like a pivot turn, right? We pitch one blue and we're able to get six block out of our equipment. Just very, very good. Dream scenario. Yep. Get some space. Uh, the generics are extremely powerful, like you said. Uh, Adrenaline Rush, we talked about it. Belittle and Minoism can be very powerful. Brandish, if you're going on some sort of weapon strategy. Um, and of course, Stony Wootenhawk, Surging Militia, these ask your opponents are really, really tough questions for sure. Things like Zealous Belton can be very powerful in Prism. Uh, specifically, Warmonger's Recital, good against anti fatigue. Warmonger's Recital is the plus three pump. If it hits, goes on the bottom of your deck, you do that with something, you're playing Prism. Do that with something like a Herald of Tenacity. You have this sort of a pseudo win condition or something that gets close to it. Good in everything, so. though. It's honestly good. In, particularly Bolton and Chain, that card is very, very good. I think Monarch is a format overall where you need to be consistently thinking about how you're going to win the game. I think that mm-hmm. Monarch is a format where you, you tend to not win games on accident by just overwhelming your opponent from hand to hand. You have to sort of adapt your game plan on the fly and think about how you're going to win the opponent. That can, win against the opponent. That can be through something like a second cycle or by just um, making sure you're getting enough value out of your cards via blocking and attacking. And then when you do draw the correct cards, you have the life total to be able to pivot onto your opponent and put them on the back foot for the rest of the game. I think the only thing to talk about, you mentioned Ironhide obviously better in multiples depending on the deck the, the other thing where you compare them really well is with prism you know mm-hmm. using prism's hero ability to create a shield then one resource left over to to iron high for the turn you potentially you've created a weapon for next turn and you've blocked out two damage and then you pitch your last blue and come in for four you've cycled effective six damage off your two two blues but you've left yourself with a shield as well which is really powerful so there's a lot of different things you can do um but yeah equipment overall my kind of my takeaway advice is the good generics are good places to start. The good shadow light cards are good places to start to keep you open. And uh, so is equipment. And equipment are going to be very powerful in the decks that you end up, especially those classes of ones like Gallantry Gold, Hooves, Evenfold, etc. Yeah. Um, one honorable mention here I think the Memorial Ground is a trash card in Monarch. Uh, some people are pretty high on it. Uh, notably, at the beginning of Monarch, people were very high on this card. And I think uh, just a general heuristic for card games is cards that do nothing are not good cards, especially in Limited. Well, which this is kind is... of what... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, famously, the card that fixed Ranger and Constructed. Yes, which it's actually starting to be played a little bit, which is funny. But yeah, this card when it came out was super hyped. Uh, Hayden, did you ever play something like a Talisman of Dowsing? It's like maybe a sideboard card, right? Like maybe. Uh, I played it in yeah, I played it in sealed. I don't I don't really know why you'd play it though. Yeah. It's quite bad, I think. A awkward. Um uh anyway, anything else to say about Monarch overall? I think that we we went through all the cards with the key strategies and the heroes. Uh Fast forwarding to the future of this format, once it comes back into competitive, I do think that we're not going to see quite an, as much of an aggressive skew towards the light heroes versus the shadow heroes. Um, so I'm particularly keen to see how that plays out at the highest level. I think people are just going to come up with what the archetypes actually look like. And I think last time people didn't necessarily know what they wanted a good deck to look like. like and maybe with Prism, it was a bit more interchangeable, even Bolton to a degree. Whereas I think with Chain, Levia, people struggled to kind of grasp this concept. I think we've got you know, we've got players playing the game more. We've got, you know, an increase of like talent in this game. Uh, people are going to work this out. And I know it's something that 
I'm keen to go back to and understand archetypes more and how I want to structure my drafts. And I'll be, you know, basically sharing as much as I can with um, on that on limited time only. So looking forward to, to doing that a little bit once we get into this Monarch season. Trying to, I'm trying to organize some Monarch drafts at the moment. Actually, I really want to draft some some Monarch. Last time I drafted Monarch, um, I mean, I'm not naming names, but it was a team draft and someone in the team decided to go 0-3 and uh, ensure that we definitely lost that team draft. So, and it wasn't me that 0-3, just, just so everyone knows. Sasha Markovic picking Eclipse Existence first pick. Had to be that guy. Uh, anyway, that wraps up episode 100 of Arsenal Pass. Definitely check out the YouTube channel if you're interested in deck techs and deck guides heading into the road to national season. Like we mentioned, Brody Spurlock coming up before this launches, most likely, and Ian Zang not too long after. Um, deck techs and deck guides alongside those going up onto the arsenal pass patreon as well so check that out if you're not already a member um this there is a video version of this podcast on youtube at youtube.com slash arsenal pass hayden and i are both on twitter i'm at brendan apg hayden is at fien underscore dale um anything else hayden no good luck at roach nationals this weekend i'll uh, see people out there yeah talk to you all next week yeah